Welcome to the Imaginative Storm podcast. I'm your host, James Nave, always going much more than twice five miles to find fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. This show was aired first on WPVM-FM out of Asheville, North Carolina. Today, our subject is design, how design works in marketing, how design works in thinking, and how you can apply it to your life. Ji Chang is joining us today as my guest. She will reflect on some of those ideas and more. Ji is the founder and leadership director at a marketing firm in New York City, Yumi. She's also a professor at Parsons and a visiting lecturer at Pratt, as well as an executive coach. Ji's leadership philosophy is stronger together. She believes when we come together as a community, we work together as a group. We have much, much more range and strength than we would if we are just doing it all alone. So join me as I welcome G to the show. G Chang, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Hi, Nave. Thank you so much for being so gracious and letting me come here and chit chat with you. I actually think this is more time for me to get to know you. I love to do these shows because when we chit chat we talk we get to know each other and you and i had a, a wonderful phone conversation uh five or six days ago and we just really got into things so i will open up with something that i'm curious about and then you can carry it from there you have devoted a great deal of your life to communication and to language and to the the creative arts both personally for your own edification as well as commercially. So I would love for you to reflect on why that kind of commitment is so important to you and why it's important to the other people you come in contact with. I would actually say that it's less on language. That's interesting that that's what came up and and yet it feels like language is the one thing that I'm the most insecure about, ironically. Communications as well. I think that my lens of coming into my space, so running Yumi, Inside Out Branding Consultancy, my work has really emerged from wanting to create a place of belonging. For me deeply, when I think back where my desire of design came in, as a child, I wanted to find a medium that I could express myself in and I came from a family with a handful, actually, of fine artists, and I didn't identify myself as an artist with a kind of capital A. I didn't identify myself as a writer, certainly. I was not a, I, even till this day, I, I tell myself a story that I'm not a good writer, and that's one that I'm continuously working on, and just was really curious by shapes and forms and color and composition and typography was really intriguing to me. And so started thinking about ways of how to express myself and, you know, ended up even not getting educated in the beginning around design. It was business school was the track that I was supposed to be taking. And then uh, saw students in a computer lab when there used to be computer labs. Now they don't have those anymore or much of them. But I remember seeing students working on a, a student magazine. And I thought, 
that's interesting. What's that? And really curious of how they use design to communicate and express even further ideas. And that was fascinating to me. A lot of the work that I've done, I would say actually drives from a very deep sense of wanting to create more voice and space for women in the world. And I went into design Actually, I, I just remember this the other day. I was washing the dishes and remembering being at Myers. So I went to school in Michigan, and that was the big 24-hour grocery store. And I remember being in line as a student and seeing Cosmo Girl or one of those magazines, women's magazines on the front cover said something like, learn 10 ways for your boyfriend to like you or for men to like you or, or something like that. And I was just so appalled. I was so mad. And I remember thinking, I want to figure out a way to have those types of titles change in the world. How do we rethink about that? How do we reframe that? And that's where design came in. Naively, I thought, if I can learn to be a designer and maybe someone with authority, like a creative director, I don't even know what they do, but I assume they have authority of what goes on the title certainly, and move my way into some kind of publishing or magazine. And I can change and and shape the way that we think about how we address women and what that looks like. And so that was really the impetus of my journey. And I went into design and went into publishing and then went into advertising. And my life trajectory changed in the sense of, yes, I do commercial work, but it became deeper in terms of why do I do that? And the work that I do at Yumi now is really looking at not so much of how do we support women per se from a gendered perspective, but really how do we amplify the feminine perspective and the feminine leadership that's lacking in the world? And so it's a lot of it is really around how to help organizations uh, and brands think about creating balance. It's about how to think about creativity and design as part of a problem-solving tool that can support business. It can support culture. It can support how you speak about who you are and what you do and why that matters. And it can support how we actually create true, meaningful change to help people in the world. When you say that bringing the feminine element or the feminine sensibilities, what would be an example of that? And how would that add value to an existing organization, maybe one that's up and running? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Examples of that looks like listening versus talking. How do I listen as a leader versus always come in and have something to say? So it's being able to receive than just giving holding space where it's much more holistic. It's holding complexity and understanding that that is possible, that we can be in space where we disagree and yet can come together and create and manifest something that can be remarkable. Showing up and being receptive and understanding that we're on a path of learning and a practice and that there are no one binary answers, right? That there's a multiple perspective of answers to consider. It's a range of different ways. My belief is that it's not that the masculine perspective or the masculine uh, type of leadership is wrong or incorrect. The way that I see leadership 
right now we see a lot of masculine ways of leading. And again, this isn't gendered, actually. It's energetic. It's very similar to how we think about in, in Eastern philosophy, yin and yang, right? So we have a lot of yang energy that's in the world, and we see that. And I see that also reflected in the way that we do. It's the practice of doing. And my belief is that it needs to be counterbalanced with the practice of being, which is the yin energy, which is the year of the rabbit. That's what we're in now as well. So it's perfect to have this conversation. But the idea here is that that counterbalance could start to create a more holistic and healthy balance ecosystem within an organization, within a system, within your own self as a personal individual. And so it's just being attentive and understanding that there are these different modalities that we can consider. And we see it a lot in the world. We see companies and organizations talking about the importance of empathy, importance of listening is a big one, or how we think about compassion in the workplace. And so these qualities, although they're not calling it feminine, to me, I I see and identify these principles as very feminine. And it's a practice that is still new to me. It's something that I am continuously practicing. I certainly have a lot of masculine energy in me. And it's the way in which I was trained. It was the way in which I was taught, especially being in New York City and the agency spaces. It's tough. It's aggressive. It is all-nighters. You do whatever it takes. And so it's um, unraveling also for me to learn what does it look like to actually be present and practice the art of being. And a lot of that also is the practice of letting go. You know, how might I let go? What does that look like? How am I willing to receive instead of always be giving? Or another way to put that is, how do I just sit back and listen instead of always coming in and having something to say? You know, I always have an opinion. I always think I have the answers. And the practice is actually quite the opposite to say, well, maybe I don't have all the answers. And maybe I can really use this time and ask a lot of questions to my team members or my clients and learn from them what possibilities might emerge and what wisdom I might be able to learn from their input and their conversations. So that's, that's really the thinking there. So often when people talk about listening, they reference the idea that I am listening to the other person and the other person appreciates it. I'm going to flip that and ask you, when you practice listening, what kind of benefits do you receive physically aside from learning about the person you're listening to? How does that change your psychology, your your physiology as when you listen? Yeah, there is a sense for me when I am listening truly, my body is receptive, right? I feel my heart opens up. There's a softening that tends to happen when I'm when I'm truly listening and I can tell the difference in my body when I'm not listening actively because for one, there's rumination happening in my mind where I am already thinking about the answer or I'm already filling in the sentence that someone is about to complete. And so it's a very subtle and difficult practice, but it is something where I can tell when I'm being very present in the moment, there is an 
opening that happens in my somatic field, a release that happens, a tenderness that can also happen, I think. And I think that in that way, what ends up happening is the conversation becomes regenerative, which that to me gets me excited. Even as I say that, I can feel my body tingling. I get excited by the regeneration of things. Of, and that's the creative force that's coming into play with me, right? Or for me, where I get excited of what new things can emerge, what can happen, what are the possibilities? Conversations of possibilities are my happy place. And so that's what comes, I think, from these conversations when I am listening, where it does feel regenerative. It's, you know, what are the different avenues that we can consider and think about? And that, to me, is uh, my source of inspiration. It's my source of truth. You know, how do we co-create things, I think, is really intriguing to me and something that I've learned to embrace over time, where a lot of leaders and creatives have not been trained, including myself, of co-creation. It was always independent. It's my identity. It's my name and my signature. I need to put on that. And the feminine leadership perspective is actually the more the merrier, actually, the more the more power we can actually bring together and bring something that can be so much bigger than what one individual can possibly achieve on their own. What you are talking about right now has given me a, we prize how we speak. We prize how we tell stories. We were born, we think, to speak, to lift our voice, find our voice. I'm wondering, based on what you just said, if we might be more born to listen as well as to speak. The baby's first cry. We always talk about the baby's first cry. Seldom hear anybody say the baby's first listen. What did the baby first hear? So what if we are equal in our listening and our speaking, although we value the, the speaking so much more? What if we're listening machines rather than speaking machines? Absolutely. I was thinking earlier today how our culture has really amplified the power of speaking as if it's the only kind of power that we can gain. Like I think about leadership and we think well leaders need followers and you can't have anyone follow you if you're not speaking and and then i think about social media and what we're always trying to do is find followers it's always how many followers do you have and and you have to be putting out content and information constantly for that and yet there's a huge assumption that's being made one that people really want to hear what that what you have to say that it matters that and then it becomes a competition of who has allowed its voice, who's more consistent with their voice. And I think that there is a deficiency that's happened where we have not activated our listening. I don't know enough about biology, but I'd be curious to think, yeah, you know, what if we are actually listening machines and mass consumerism just hasn't been able to figure out how to capitalize on that. But if that were to shift, certainly we could activate our listening skills and, you know, to level up. I could imagine now that we're speaking in you know, 10 years from now, we're having a different conversation, Nave, where it's just everyone's listening so much, no one's speaking enough. I mean, that might be a possibility. Maybe that's going to be the next wave of AI where it's just, 
you know, training us to listen and not speak. I don't know. Well, it is an interesting notion because we do value listening. And you and I started this conversation saying, well, listening is part of the female aspect of an mm-hmm. organization. So if, if you mm-hmm. cultivate listening, and yet we don't hear much about listening as an origin point. We hear it as a skill that we acquire. I, I need to learn how to listen rather than thinking, well, I was born with this. I was born hearing. And then, of course, listening goes well beyond the ears to the vibrations, absorbing the information on multiple levels. So our bodies are uh, receptors for all of that information. And we, we call it listening. So the stillness and listening seem to go together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. And and think about when we listen to really moving music, your body feels that. And when we're really paying attention to uh, an interview that we're listening to or a film that we're watching and how it moves our inner, our inner bodies, our inner subtle bodies. And I think that that's something that is healing for a lot of us. And yet we are in this strange world where we're constantly talking at each other and fighting for that space, you know, to be on that soapbox. And I think that it has created a detriment. And I, it does mean, and I, and you're, you're correct. I I would agree with you, just this ability to be still. That's something that I'm just noticing a lot when I look at my students that are in design school, when I look at uh, other creatives in the industry, our inability to actually be present and understand the practice of presence and stillness is very difficult and challenging. There's this idea that being productive is doing. And then we think doing is, for some people, it's talking, instead of realizing that actually taking in and being receptive and knowing how to practice presence within myself and within my organization could actually have a much more sustainable and greater impact across the board. You mentioned your students and the teaching work you do in addition to the advertising work you do. When you are working with your students, the young the young people who show up in your classroom, and you work with them around design, how do they perceive design? How do they define it? People who don't think about it much, they might think of a design as a logo or some image they would see on the lotion bottle or the Tide box or whatever. Design contains emptiness. It contains many things. So how do they see design and how do you see design beyond just the image that we glance on the road signs? I will say that I have noticed over the years students' evolution in how they define design, which I love seeing. So four or five years ago, I would see design students thinking of design as what you say, it's the output, it's graphic design, it's packaging design, it's the logo, it's the color. Uh, That was a very limited lens or view to how we think of design. Now it's evolved uh, and students are really understanding that design is a practice and a methodology to solve problems. And that to me is really exciting and beautiful because that's how I see it. Uh, I, I think that it so happens that we make solutions look beautiful 
you know, but that is not the main outcome. It's, is it solving the problem and how do we do it beautifully so that it is um, evoking the sense or the emotions that we wanted to evoke, or it is connecting with the people that we want to connect with, or it is expressing the identity truly inside out from an, of an organization. Sometimes we have meetings with potential new clients and we always say, you know, we're designers with a capital D. It's not just graphic design. We're really thinking of it as what are design principles? What are, how do we use this as a way to solve problems and challenges? And a lot of that actually requires a lot of curiosity. It requires not just coming in and making assumptions. It's asking a ton of questions and, and trying to understand what are systemic challenges that are causing some of the problems that we're seeing today and within the organization so that we can get underneath and start designing solutions that are foundational and then really ladder up to something that could be a messaging or a brand identity and a logo, but it really goes deeper in. We think of design at uni, at my consultancy, as inside out. So we're really looking at what are the interior aspects of an organization, the culture, the mindset, the leadership that is impacting the organization as a system and how might we think about design tools and processes to help shift whatever needs to be shift for them to be more productive, for them to be more innovative, for them to create more trust in an organization and accountability. Um, and then in addition to that, it starts to then express itself way outwards, which is the uh, the tone of the organization, right? How they look, speak, and feel. That all becomes the external expression of the organization. So when I think about design, it's a tool. And the way that we use it is this inside-out approach where we're thinking about it holistically of how do we think about design methods and tools to help bring an organization together. You think organizations have similar interior profiles to a human interior profile. So I'm emotional, maybe I'm careless, or maybe I'm love details, maybe I'm more broad, maybe I'm more, more narrow, maybe I'm political in one way or another. I have all of this wrapped up in me, and I have every emotional state that has ever existed functions through all of us. Are there overlaps between organizations and humans? And what are the differences? Certainly. I mean, of course, I think that, you know, an organization is only a collection of humans and all their dysfunctions. So it's just going to be a nice, hot, dysfunctional mess that we're trying to organize and have the ability. Uh, I think about families where maybe most of us, I certainly don't have the ability to organize the dysfunction in my families. No one will listen to my rules, but within an actual proper org, uh, there'll be at least some kind of process, hopefully, that will allow for some kind of reorganization or reconsidering or re-managing, designing, thinking how an organization exists. Every leader and every collection of leaders, and we know this and have experienced this, impacts the entire org. You know, how an organization is set up, you know, is it a traditional kind of pyramid model? Is it more of a holacracy? Is it decentralized? To what extent is it? I think that all the different facets that leaders bring, their challenges, their visions, their insecurities, 
all come together to form the ecosystem and the culture and the essence of an organization's spirit. And that's something that we really need to keep an eye on. And it's difficult for a lot of leaders to be able to have that conversation. It's oftentimes leaders will point to employees that aren't doing the work and not understand that it's a it's it's a reflection of certain practices that you implicitly are practicing inside your organization. And so I think that of course, an organization is going to have all the challenges that an individual has and they bring it there. And we either know how to deal with that within a organized team of sorts, or we don't. And we just project all of our crap onto other people and, and do that all day. And we've all experienced that, whether we're on either side of the fence or we learn how to create a sense of awareness of ourselves and of each other and start to figure out how are we going to coexist in a way that we can come together and do the things that we were hoping and meaning to do. So what does that look like? And that's the broad perspective and looking into an organization. And I had a sense that would be where you would take this because I, I, I agree with you. I think that's it, mm-hmm. it does function like that. So when you get into the design work, the actual design work, and I've looked at your, your, your business's website, and you have examples of organizations you've worked with. You have the fonts. You have the color. You have the strategic ideas laid out so anybody can see those. When you are choosing colors and fonts, and those other design elements, how granular do you get in terms of how one font might relate to another and the psychological response that it would have? In poetry, a lot of poets will study that. They'll put different sounds together to get a certain result from the person who's listening. People who compose music will do that as well. Are you working at that level with some of this stuff? Yeah, certainly. So what usually happens before we even get into the colors and the fonts, we really are thinking about the strategy. It's always strategy first. So it's quite of a deep dive to make sure that do we have a clear understanding of how an organization is positioned? Who are you truly? You know, and, and or who are you now and who do you want to be? Sometimes it's a bit of a from too. And so getting a sense of where is this organization? What is their leadership thinking? How are they going to think about implementing this? What have they done in the past and how do they want to shift now? Sometimes it's an organization that's existed. Sometimes it's an organization that is emerging. And so what are you merging in the context of what? And so that kind of deep work is done. And that takes a significant amount of time. By the time we move into actually the brand identity system, the graphics itself, fonts and the colors, at that point, there's only so many ways to go. It's quite interesting. It's not a free-for-all. The strategy has given us a clear direction of the kind of organization that's being created. And so you would have a certain kind of spirit already codified in language. So what a design director does is that they come in and they say, okay, now I understand 
the words, how am I going to create an expression that will match that? And it's a dance. It's a dance of colors that come together. It's a dance of typefaces that work together in different shapes and sizes. It's a dance of facial arrangement. That's a huge thing. Uh, we have a design director who always creates an audio soundtrack to the brand. So it's a very immersive experience that we think about when we consider our brand identity. If we were to work together and you said, you know, gee, I, I really want a different look. You know, I, I don't really like my fashion. I don't like the way I look. I just, it doesn't feel like who I want to be in the future. That's not my thing. We would start with, well, who are you? You know, and why are you dressing the way you do right now? What's that about? Let's talk about that. Is it that you just don't know what you need and who are you now? Or is it that you actually evolved and how you dress right now is who you were at that time? And now you're moving to a different phase. And let's talk about that. And so once we start to think about who are you internally and understanding that and the why behind that and the purpose behind why do you want to be that? What does that mean to you? Then the outfits that we might consider will only go a few different ways, right? There's only so many different options that we can really think about because we've gotten so clear about who your internal landscape and identity is. So it works in that kind of two-step process. Good design solves a challenge. And so if that's the goal, then there usually is a distillation of simplicity. It certainly isn't there to make it more complicated. And we've experienced bad design that way, right? I mean, I've been in airports where it's, why is it so difficult for me to find my gate? Or I've been in museums where it's, why can I not find the bathroom? I don't understand, right? And that's poor wayfinding, poor design, where they're not thinking about the actual challenge. They might've been led to beautiful design that didn't actually solve the challenge. Whereas good design, I think, solves that challenge. And it's so simple. And you say, oh, of course, that's where the bathroom is. You know, the gates are designed in a way where I know exactly where I'm going and where I can get a coffee, you know, right next to my gate. I've had both of those experiences. <laughs> what would be an example of a strategy and then the implementation of that strategy that you could offer us, especially for people who are listening to this and they maybe have never had a conversation with somebody that understood advertising at the level you understand it? How would that work? So the simplest way to think of it is being able to articulate your vision, mission, and your values. So if one were to articulate what their vision is, which is what we call their North Star, your vision of the world, and then the mission, the way that we define it is how you plan on achieving that big, audacious vision. And then the values that support that. And it's important when we think about the values that support that, it's not just the words, it's the definition of those words, because everyone has a different definition of it. So add texture to that. Really go in and explain what that means in however form that makes sense to you. Sometimes values can be a manifesto that's beautifully written. You could have it be poetry. You could have it be a list of bullet points that have sub bullet points that describe the values, but really go in and explain what that is. And so then once you start to articulate this kind of trifecta of the vision, mission, and values, you can start to realize that there's a certain essence that will become to emerge based on those values, right? So if you had values that was all about bottom line, it was all about efficiency, it was all about productivity, you can imagine that 
a brand might look a different way than if it were about openness and trust and connection, right? And so already there's different colors that are happening for me in my mind where I can tell where the color palettes might be different or the typography might be different or the visuals might be different. And so that's what you're starting to do is that these words start to evoke imagery. The the logo itself and the colors itself and the images itself, it's not the work in itself objectively that creates the brand. It's our association to those images and colors and those visuals that we're really looking at that evoke the entire identity system that we're creating here. I've looked at your work and it has a very clear identity and it represents you. You are a leader. You're working in New York. You are in that role with other people working around you. You certainly understand that your mission always evolves and your vision changes. And yet looking into your world from my point of view, okay, G has a sense of who she is and what she wants to do. How does that make you feel as a leader and how do you use that sense of um, balance perhaps to help the others around you, including leading your students? I think that the first thing that comes up for me as you were speaking is that I have over the years been able to evolve my own personal practice and take. When I was much younger, I think I came into the industry trying to prove something you know, trying to prove myself. A lot of creatives do that. We come in and we're proving and trying to show our worth and our value. And it's not to say that that still isn't a challenge that I have. I think that a lot of creatives, including myself, have that constant challenge. But it's been helpful for me to reframe how I think about my work. And I really do think of my work as being a supporter um, in service of the people that are around me. I teach only so as long as I am needed and required. And I say that over and over again, I will stop teaching the minute you don't need me. And I always ask, was this helpful? How was it helpful? How can I improve? Because I feel a very deep sense of duty there. One of my purposes of being here on earth is how can I contribute? How can I support? How can I support other people to find themselves. I don't know if I have a strong sense of myself. I think that I'm always questioning that too and reevaluating who am I? How am I reifying what self is and how do I deconstruct that? What am I grasping onto? What am I not? And that's a really tough practice to have as an individual. I think for a lot of clients of mine, every time I start a branding project, I always start with, this is going to be a spiritual process. And I cannot tell you how many times, I would say pretty much 9.9 out of 10 times, (laughs) clients will just not understand what that means, but it does. It really tests. They'll say, I'm not spiritual. And they say, well, we'll talk about what that means for you when we start feeling some of this tension and friction, because there is a very strong hold we have to who we are and how we need to show ourselves in the world. And that's very challenging for so many of us. And so a lot of my work, the way that I look at it is I've been able to embrace truly being a learner and being curious. I teach to learn. That's why I teach. If I had the option, I would be in school for the rest of my life. And I teach so that I 
have an opportunity to learn more and more. I, being able to teach allows me to go deeper in content that I would not push myself to go into. I'd be kind of curious, but would I really go deeper into understanding the tectonic plates that come into place of how I'm going to build this thing? I love learning from my students. I get so delighted when I come out of class and I learn something new. It could be anything. It could be, you know, something about TikTok that I just recently learned that I was delighted by. It could be a new type of practice that's out there I've never heard of or a new type of designer that I've never known of. And so that's a big part of it. So I think being motivated to think of my life journey as a place of practice and a place of learning allows me to not feel pressure on myself. I don't have the answers. I mean, most of the times the people that are sitting across the room actually have more of the answers than I do. And so my job is really, how do I hold space to start seeing what those seeds are and how do we grow that together to start to see what emerges? And so this kind of emergence is what's exciting to me. And I think that that has been so far um, the way that I have interacted with my students and my clients and try to take that kind of perspective. I would also say that it's challenging in the consultancy space because consultants are historically known and were paid to have the answers. I think that there's a balance there where it's okay, how do we play with this yin-yang energy again, right? How do we come in and make sure that we're open and then know that when we need to come back and there's a retraction and there's a giving and a retract, just kind of an opening and a closing. And so it's really about being attentive to that and trying to be collaborative with our team and also with our clients to come together to see what can we emerge, you know, what can emerge and what can we manifest together. I find it very difficult and challenging and also physically just traumatic almost in a way when it feels like there's all of this pressure for one person to have all the answers, because I don't think that that's true. I don't think that's possible. No one person has all the answers. And to put that much pressure on one person is is a strange concept for me more and more. And to put that on myself feels like a strange concept. And so releasing myself from that idea of uh, perfectionism or knowing everything or thinking I know everything, I think has liberated me and the people around me to say, you know, there are times where I don't know, or there are times where we will learn this together. Or there'll be some times where I'll say, well, based on my experience, this is what I've learned. And maybe that applies to you, or maybe it doesn't. And if it doesn't, let's let's talk about that. And so that's the approach that I've taken so far. Your students, you've mentioned them many times. Exactly what subjects do you teach these students? And why are they so drawn to your subjects? I'm assuming you're teaching them design, but how does that work? Yeah, so I teach... Uh, two very interesting topics, I think, in the design school. The first one was uh, I started teaching at Parsons for their undergraduate program. And I thought that they would come to me and ask me if I would teach a course around entrepreneurship, around design, around branding. And they actually asked me to teach a course around creative team dynamics, you know, how do creative teams come together? How do they actually work together? Can you teach something like this? And I said, 
I think so. I mean, I, I lead a lot of teams and started to really think about and dissect what are the different areas that I want to think about of how creative teams work together. Because a lot of the times there's an assumption that if you just put a bunch of people together in a room, they'll just miraculously make something. And that's not true. We know that there's tension that will happen. So that's one topic that I spend um, my semesters on. And then the second one is teaching a graduate program at Pratt Institute over in Brooklyn. And I teach a course around design management. And the way that I teach it, it's at the intersection of leadership, it's a business, and it's a brand identity. So it's really what we are doing here at Yumi. It's that same type of work. We're thinking about the intersection of how do we think of culture? How do we think about design? How do those things impact each other? And how does that help frame up the business and the business model of an organization? I'm now thinking about the people who are listening to this show and they're out there with their idea and they're thinking, well, this is great. G has all of these connections. She has all of this knowledge. She has all of this work that she can do. I wish I could come to New York and get G to help me, but I just don't have those resources. So what can a, a young person do starting out wanting to make this happen? How do they go about having the kind of confidence they need to build out so they can rise up and keep moving up into the sky with, with as few a hindrances as possible? I am a firm believer and practitioner of you reach out to people that you look up to, that you're inspired by, and find ways to learn from them. I have multitude of stories where I have read something about someone, listened to something about someone, uh, watched an interview, or been in presence of an interview, and have just found ways to say, what your story is or what you're doing is something that deeply resonates with me. And this is why, and I would love to find some time to learn more about what you're doing or how can I learn more or where can I go? So that's the number one thing for me is just reach out to those people that you see. Don't think that they're far away and, and not everyone will respond. That's okay. But there will be someone who is moved by your honest and open letter that you send to them. And I've had people like that in my life who have really changed the trajectory of my career where I was in high fashion and advertising and I've moved into a much more integrated and impactful space that is really thinking about design systems. And that didn't happen overnight. I had to find a new community and new people and new friends. And I kept some of the ones I still have in my ad days, but my world has evolved where I'm not just selling product. I'm actually thinking about the system of an organization and a brand of a, of a product, right? And so that would be something where I encourage you, reach out, you know, set, find them on LinkedIn, find them on social media, find their emails and send them a, an honest note that shares about what you're doing and what you're trying to do. Because I say this, the collective we need more people like you out there. And so if there are more people like you that believe in the things that I believe in, I want to help lift you up. Of course, I, I want more of you out there. I can't do this alone. And so that's that's my number one piece of advice there is go find your allies, go find your people 
and, and know that there's going to be other people alongside them that you can be a part of. So often people think I, I shouldn't ask for help. I should be able to do it by myself. I'm hearing you say, maybe put that thought aside. Maybe allow yourself to understand there are many people out there and they're probably right in front of you. All you have to do is take a deep breath and send the email or make the call or invite them to coffee or whatever. Absolutely. It's very rare that we are doing anything end-to-end, creating anything end-to-end on our own. There's usually at least another person. We were earlier talking about our website at Yumi, and I said to Nave, thank you so much for the compliments, but I will make sure I pass that on to my team because that was not me alone. It took a team of people to create. And so understanding that it's rare to do something all on your own, and it's quite lonely to do it that way. More and more, the power of coming together is being proven with different ways of how creatives are collaborating, uh, especially now with, during the pandemic. We saw creation happening now all globally, which is so cool to me. I love seeing that richness and not letting our physical nature get in the way of how we connect with different people around the world. You and I are able to have this beautiful conversation and we're in different time zones and I love that. And that, to me, is also a part of the principles that I believe in around feminine leadership. You do call upon your people, right? You do ask for help. It's okay to to have this sense of knowing that you don't need to have all the answers. You can actually be open to receiving. So the, the main thing is if you are going and asking and looking for help, make sure that you're open to receive. Make sure that you're open to being curious. Make sure that you're open to learning um, and so that you're receptive to the intake. And it doesn't mean that 100% of the information that you might get, you will use at that moment. So then just shelve it. Whatever doesn't apply for the moment, shelve it because it may come back to you in 5, 10, 20 years later where you think, oh, I remember that one thing that you know G1 said that I just rolled my eyes at. And now it's kind of making sense. And I certainly have those moments of, old mentors and bosses where I remember something that they said and I just thought, ha, whatever. And then one day just randomly, probably when I'm washing the dishes, it, it sparks a new idea. And I think, oh, that's what they meant. Oh, okay. It just took 25 years. Okay. <laughs> that's okay. Well, gee, we have arrived at the top of our time together. The before we go, would you tell people how they could find out more about you in case they want to reach out and tell you their story? Absolutely. You can reach out for sure uh, to our website at Yumi. It's U-M-E Design. That's D-E-S-I-G-N dot C-O. Again, that's Yumi Design dot C-O. Or please find me on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. So just search my name and and link up with me and send me a note and tell me what we want to talk about next time we meet. Okay. Well, Ji Chang, thank you very much for spending this time with us. I really appreciate all that you had to say and all the, the gifts you gave us. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Nave. And there you go, my friends, my conversation with Ji Chang. I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you so much for 
tuning in to the Imaginative Storm podcast, where we always go much more than twice five miles to find fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I am your host, James Nave. If you'd like to reach out to me, Nave, at imaginativestorm.com. I would love to hear from you. And if you go to imaginativestorm.com, you will find many resources for writers. So if you like to write and, and if you enjoy being more creative in your daily activities and in your life, imaginativestorm.com, you'll find some tips there to help you move that along. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, walterparks.com. If you'd like to know more about Walter's music, once again, I appreciate your time. Thank you ever so much for tuning in to The Imaginative Storm. And I do hope you come back very soon. Till then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.